0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: The Boris Johnson era is over. It is clearly now the will of
2: the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. And the
1: time... Today, in front of number 10 Downing Street, Mr. Johnson stood down as leader of Britain's Conservative Party.
2: But as we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable.
1: He bowed out after days of mounting pressure, sparked by a scandal involving one of his ministers accused of sexual assault. I want to thank
2: you, the British public, for the immense privilege that you have given me. Being Prime Minister is an education in itself. I've travelled to every part of the United Kingdom and in addition to the beauty of our natural world, i found so many people possessed of such boundless British originality and so willing to tackle old problems in new ways that I know that even if things can sometimes seem dark now, our future together is golden. Thank you all very much. Thank you.
1: Johnson hopes to stay on as caretaker Prime Minister until his successor is chosen in the autumn, Whoever that person is will be greeted with a monstrous intray. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, as Boris Johnson resigns, what's next for Britain? Boris Johnson was perhaps the most compelling and controversial figure of his political generation. I first encountered him debating with Brio as president of the Oxford Union in the late 1980s, thundering away in his Churchillian style with a dusting of schoolboy wit. From there, it was a stint as a flamboyant columnist and magazine editor. But power was always the lure for a man who as a child said he wanted to be world king His political career began in 2001 as MP in the conservative safe seat of Leafy Henley-on-Thames. Not long after, he plotted his way to the role of a two-term mayoralty in London, a traditionally Labour city. Johnson frequently defied expectations and brought followers and fans to his brand of gung-ho, disruptive politics, often with an irreverent turn of phrase to boot. That mix of talents and a large dose of opportunism... ...led him to support Brexit, the winning side in the 2016 referendum.
2: Yesterday, I believe the British people have spoken up for democracy... ...in Britain and across Europe. And I think we can be very proud of the result.
1: It was on the wings of Brexit that he soared to the top of British politics in 2019... That December, he led his party to a landslide election victory.
2: My friends, good morning everybody, my friends. Well, we did it. We did it.
1: We pulled it off, didn't we? we pulled it off. But Boris Johnson's immense potential was betrayed by his ill discipline and cutting corners with the truth. The mountain of scandals that built up during his premiership sunk his popularity. The Johnson brand, from beginning to end, was about energy and stardust. Today, it crashed and burned, leaving a vacuum in power and a vacancy behind that famous glossy black door at number 10. So, to discuss how it all imploded and what will happen next, with me are Andrew Palmer, our Britain editor, and Samir Keynes, who is our Britain economics editor. After days of intense pressure, over 50 government resignations and a rebellion in his cabinet, Boris Johnson's finally gone as leader of the Conservative Party. What struck you both most about how the past couple of days have played out?
0: A presiding impression is one of chaos, um, but also this weird sort of courtliness. So we had an appearance yesterday where Johnson was talking to the select committee in Parliament at the same time as people were resigning en masse, tweeting that they'd had enough of him, expressing lack of confidence in him. So you could actually see this draining authority away from him over a period of hours. And it was all public. So that was very
3: remarkable. So what stuck in your mind? Oh, the, the many, many hilarious memes that people were sharing on Twitter. Um, at one point, there was a downfall video that seemed fairly apt. And yeah, I mean, I suppose from my perspective, the thing I was most interested in was, was how the economic debate played into all of this. There were a lot of headlines. Everyone was fixating on the impact of all the turmoil on sterling, which actually wasn't very big as moves go. But it's been great fun reading all the analyst notes about what this means for the future of the pound.
1: Well, what struck me was this mix of absurdity and drama and the fact that you never really knew from one minute to the next whether the last thing you heard was going to be over. And in my case, I talked to a lot of people preparing the show on background in Parliament and in the ministerial ranks. And you would be talking to people who were saying they were going to hold off and they weren't sure what they were going to do, only to find out that the next step had happened. And either they had just called for Boris Johnson to go, or they'd had a conversation with him such that they... They had been removed. So it was a bit like kind of Schrodinger's cat. You never knew which minister was still alive or dead at any given time. So it all got very, very chaotic and comedic indeed. Mr Johnson's premiership was marked not only by that sense of chaos and often strangely comic appearance, but by serious scandals. Talk us through, Andrew, the main ones that eroded public and government trust Mr. Johnson.
0: Yeah, well, there's a sort of how long have you got problem if you want to talk about scandals. And Johnson, I mean, there's a sort of drumbeat of smaller ones there's furniture and there's lobbying and there's contacts with Russians and there's ethics advisors. I guess the proximate cause of him going was a man called Chris Pincher, who is the deputy chief whip, who was accused of drunkenly groping two men last week. And the cover-up about that, the questions over how much Mr. Johnson knew, were the ones that really sunk him. So people were sent out to say he knew nothing. It turned out he did know quite a lot about the allegations about Mr. Pincher. So that built on a sense of unease And questions about Mr. Johnson, which really we can trace back to something called Partygate. These are the revelations that while everyone else was being forced to stay at home during COVID social distancing in Downing Street, there was an awful lot of socializing going on. And the drip, drip of revelations about that, again, the initial stories, but then the cover up you know, denials that parties took place, denials that Mr Johnson knew anything about it, and so on and so forth. That unfolded for months, caused a tremendous corrosive draining of trust. It was
1: like a sort of battery acid, wasn't it? It just burned through from those who were already critical of Boris Johnson, and there were were many, but... towards his supporters and gradually ate up his support
0: totally right so that had been going for months and then it seemed like it had just about we were in a lull period at least it hadn't gone away and then the pincher thing came up again it completely reinforced all of those impressions but actually i want to ask you Anne, because you i think you've had experience of mr johnson what's your take on the past few months
1: Well, I was just going to look back really a bit over Boris Johnson I've known for a good 30 years. Yikes. And this extraordinary mix, Andrew, of talent and his facility with words, his ability to hold the room or to persuade people to listen to him that you wouldn't think would listen to a conservative leader. I think we even saw it to be mildly generous for just a second in his resignation statement, is that ability to sort of get on and do a performance that's always been there at the same time. I've covered him in City Hall in London, two terms as mayor in a very Labour city. That was an achievement. But many times he just didn't tell me the truth. And I know that this became a bit of a fixation for his enemies. But I remember him once laying out a scenario and saying, these terrible things are being said about me. something in his personal life. He said, you know me well, you know the media. What do you think I should say? And I was about to give advice. And then I suddenly thought, well, Boris, it depends if it's true or not. And it clearly hadn't He hadn't thought that there were different things that you should say if something is true or if something is not true. And I do think that was also part of that corrosive effect that you've described.
0: I guess the other thing is, you know, his character has been fairly fixed for a long time, perhaps even sort of, you know, right back to the start of his life. You're talking about interactions when he was mayor. That didn't seem to hurt people around him. But one of the things we've written about this week is the fact that his flaws have corroded systems of government unwritten norms, but also people. So good people trying to do a good job come into contact with Johnson and something toxic happens to them. His flaws leach out and they affect him. So there's something very, very irradiating about Uh, Johnson. I think
1: that is the price you pay for power, isn't it? That you do take on the moral flaws, whatever they are of your leadership. I would just say, I don't think that's only Boris Johnson. I think that tends to be true when it comes to cutting corners or spin, if we think back over some of the, the accusations of previous governments. But I think where you are onto something is that it's all very magnified with Boris Johnson. People were pulled in. It was almost like burnt by the sun by that extraordinary character, but also these very large weaknesses, fatal weaknesses.
0: You're right that power corrupts but you have a peculiarly flawed individual here. And the system in which cabinet ministers, for example, go out on broadcast rounds and defend their prime minister, completely normal. If you have a prime minister who routinely lies and obfuscates and dissembles, then defending him immediately puts you in the limelight. It impugns your reputation too.
1: I think so. And I think also that is in the end what drove him out. That Too many people felt that they were being infected. Their political future was being infected. But we should just touch on the fact, and as he certainly did, in fact he rammed it home, that he had appealed to voters outside the usual Conservative core. And in a sense, a lot of the problem was that the party didn't want to make the difficult choices about Brexit when he brought in those voters. I guess he's saying, well, you know, what's going to happen to them now? They've been left aside and left out in the cold. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, he did win elections and he won a stonking majority in 2019. And he did bring together this coalition, very unlikely coalition of north and south. And it would be very difficult for other people to maintain that coalition. I don't think that's just Johnson's personality. Things have changed. Brexit is done. Jeremy Corbyn is not leading the Labour Party, etc, etc. But he did have a proven record and he can point to that.
1: So mayor, Mr Johnson personify some of the inconsistencies of policy under his premiership, but they do run deep. And uh, you you know this territory extremely well, the resignation of Chancellor Rishi Sunak underlined the fact that the party is so divided on economic policy. It wants low taxes, it wants balanced budgets, and it wants expensive or at least more invested in public services. What do you think the impact of that incoherence has been?
3: I think the most obvious consequence is that increasingly we have seen disagreements spill out over into the public domain. Essentially, mostly, Ruşa Sunak has been in charge of fiscal policy, and those rifts haven't been very clear. More recently, we've been hearing more calls for tax cuts. There was one advisor to the prime minister who suggested that the AT should be cut. There was another suggestion that perhaps the increase in corporation tax that's planned for next April should be cancelled. So those disputes are really coming to the fore.
1: And this divide between those who wanted to raise taxes to spend some money as we look like we're gaping into a recession, it might be a good idea to spend some money up front, particularly on those vulnerable seats, the so-called red wall seats often in more working class areas. Do you think that that was a clear divide about economics or was it much more a distributional one about which part of the country do we need to keep happy in order to win the next election?
3: Yeah, I mean, clearly, there's a political disagreement about where the more geography specific funding needs to be sent. I think sometimes the divide within the party has been masked by wishful thinking. So sometimes you hear that it is possible to have low taxes, low borrowing, because we're just going to cut all the wasteful spending. And there's this perception among some that that's a very easy thing to do. I don't think it is an easy thing to do.
0: I just wanted to actually ask Samara a question which is around the republicanization of economic policy. So the Tories have traditionally been this, you know, fiscal discipline, you've got to pay for things if you're going to cut taxes for example. And it feels like the direction of the party has shifted into something which is much more like the Republican Party after Trump arrived. Is that how you see it and if so what does that mean?
3: Yeah, I think one needs to distinguish between the direction of travel and where they are right now. So clearly, if you compare the austerity years, George Osborne, the former chancellor, had a very clear narrative, right? You know, we're going to make the tough decisions in terms of the fiscal consolidation, cutting, borrowing. The way he did that was mostly by cutting spending. Practically, we've actually already seen a shift with more recent governments in that there's been more of a focus on raising taxes rather than cutting spending. So there has been a change there. Now the question is whether they are going to increase borrowing in order to fund some of these tax cuts that Boris Johnson joked would be easier with Rishi Sunak gone. Under the Republicans in America, that's what they did. They had unfunded tax cuts, borrowing ballooned. There we go. Unclear whether that will happen now in the UK.
1: Coming up, we'll explore the direction of travel for the Conservative Party and Britain after the departure of Boris Johnson. But first, I wanted to speak to Charles Pole, now Lord Pole, one of the closest advisers to the late Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. He was there the day she resigned. And there are echoes in the dramatic fall of two of the most charismatic Tory leaders – And a sense of epochal upheaval in British politics.
4: Like in the case of Boris Johnson, Margaret Thatcher was evicted by the Conservative Parliamentary Party. She never lost an election, and of course, she never lost a national election. And he would, I'm sure, argue that nor has he. On the other hand, there are quite a lot of differences too. In Margaret Thatcher's time, there was a specific challenge to her leadership, an election was run. And she failed to win the large enough majority. This time, there was no particular challenger to Boris Johnson. There was no one waiting in the wings to take over. There probably, goodness knows how many. Tory members of Parliament think they have a field marshal's baton in their knapsack. That's really one big difference. And secondly, the whole process is, was much shorter then, really. Margaret Thatcher had to decide to step down on the 23rd of November, and by the 27th of November, there was a new Prime Minister. This time it looks as though we're in for um, quite an interregnum, maybe three months or so. So there are clear differences as well.
1: I wondered what it was like to be in number 10 and to be so close as a principal advisor to the person who's been in power and is being ousted from power. And can you just set the scene a bit of what, what you think will have been happening to Boris Johnson behind that black door?
4: Well, I suspect behind the black door, similar things were happening as it happened in Margaret Thatcher's time. That is, it's very urgent discussions with members of the Cabinet, with members of the Conservative Party and with other staff to try to see what could be done. Margaret Thatcher hadn't expected to lose the leadership election, or at least not to fail to win it on the first round. and She wasn't even in the country. So the first thing was to get her back into Number 10 Downing Street and get together a team of ministers whom she would regard as particular loyalists to discuss how to organise a campaign for a second round. And I dare say similar discussions had been going on in Number 10 for Boris Johnson. So the discussion within Number 10 oscillates between the cabinet room, prime minister's study or sitting room, and the prime minister's flat, depending on the time of day and who she wants to talk to. The great thing, I think, as far as possible, is to try to prevent confusion. A lot of people will want to talk to a Prime Minister in these seconds. probably more than he or she wants to hear. It's making sure that they have access to the right people.
1: You see, that is really what interests me if we draw that comparison and how you look at Boris Johnson as you watch him today. He concedes himself that he tried very hard to convince his cabinet, and those he'd just appointed to cabinet to stick with him, and they didn't. That must have been, one, dramatic, but two, is that the mistake that all ousted leaders make, that they think they can bargain their way out of it?
4: I don't think Margaret Thatcher's heart was ever actually in it. Um, She went through the motions of preparing for a second round, and uh, how that would be campaigned, but I'm sure... I'm really sure that from the moment she heard the initial result in Paris, she knew she was doomed. So she came back to London and she went through the motions of talking to her main political allies and so on, but knowing in her heart that she had had to win outright on the first round. After 11 years as prime minister, that was the only way you could be confident of a victory.
1: So you, you think, even in an ebullient character like Boris Johnson, who also is very inspired by that long stint in power of Margaret Thatcher much longer than his, that there is a bit of them that knows the game is up even as they fight on.
4: I'm sure Boris Johnson knew the game was up. He must have known it for some days now, really. Um, he put up a, what he would see as a valiant resistance, no doubt trying to tap as many allies and so on as he could. He as good as admitted it. but. I wonder, too, whether he really was just trying to stave off the moment rather than believe that he had a chance of saving himself still.
1: Unlike Mrs Thatcher, who left number 10 swiftly, Mr Johnson wants to stay on as caretaker prime minister until October, when a new leader will take the helm. But that's many months away, and there's been a chorus of loud calls from his own party for him to step down sooner. To explore what will happen in this interim, I'm back with Andrew and Sumeya.
0: I mean, it's very hard to imagine him being there for months. That just feels difficult, in part because we are in a moment where there are really, really serious challenges facing the country and policy decisions need to be made. And it's harder to make them if you're an interim prime minister who is going to go. So just as one example... We are likely to have a very, very difficult winter with energy. So we need to have a plan for security of supply, potential rationing, et cetera, et cetera. That has to be done over the summer. It's just harder to do that if you've got a leader who has basically got no one's confidence. Plus there's a practical thing. You know, does he have enough people to actually get decisions done, to be in meetings even. He's managed to cobble together a cabinet today, but it looks like the level below that, junior ministers, he hasn't got enough of them. So all of that begs a question. We may find that he has to go much, much quicker.
1: The sound of barrels being scraped to get that cabinet We're together. through
0: the bottom of barrels, I think.
1: <laughs> uh, let's look to the leadership contest, which will take place Over the summer, there are a lot of early runners and riders, something of a donkey derby. Some of them will get knocked out. I thought we should just go around the table and get a sense. Who do you think is out of the traps and looking at least like they're going to make a good start in this race, Andrew?
0: Um, I'm going to actually turn it straight back to you because you've talked to ministers more than I have recently. So who do you fancy?
1: I would say the health secretary, Sajid Javid who held the chamber and the Commons wrapped yesterday with a resignation statement. And that's interesting because he's seen as a bit of a moderate, perhaps neither remain nor leave. You know, he's in a sort of mid-position nowadays. And he was often seen as not being a terribly good communicator. Amazing backstory, comes from a very poor background, very successful, and it would appear very focused when he's in for the kill. But I should also maybe name-check Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, who is a bit more on the right, slightly more towards the libertarian end of the party on economics. She is held up, I think, as a latter-day Thatcherite, and I wouldn't underestimate the determination of a woman in a conservative party race. We've had Margaret Thatcher and we've had Theresa May. Both got to number 10. Now, Andrew, you're on the spot.
0: I would say that I mean it's an obvious candidate, but Nadim Zahawi is a strong contender. He's the person who's taken over from Rishi Sunak as Chancellor of the Exchequer, previously Education Secretary, regarded as having done a good job in the COVID vaccine rollout, good communicator, loyal to Johnson without being for a day. Yeah. For a day. I mean, you know, he can waive that. And then the person we have not heard anything from is Ben Wallace, who's the Defence Secretary. He is the most popular member of Parliament among Tory members. And the selection process for the Tory party leader will ultimately come down to those members. He hasn't yet said anything. But if he does throw his hat into the ring, then he may well
1: be very, very strong. So you laid out some of the economic challenges in that model about where the government is going in terms of its management of the country's money and ultimately
3: prosperity. So
1: are there candidates that you're seeing who would represent different wings of that argument?
3: Clearly, there's a divide between Rishi Sunak, who historically has been more on the kind of fiscal conservative side of things, and Adeem Zahawi, who has reportedly agreed with Boris Johnson that tax cuts are necessary for growth. So there is a potential dispute there. I, I do predict that the topic of tax cuts will be an important one as the leadership race pots up.
1: Do you think Rishi Sunak still got a fighting chance?
3: Well, yesterday I was actually looking at the data, the betting odds, and I was really struck by how Rishi Sunak was, was just incredibly far ahead in terms of being the front runner. Very high odds of him becoming the next leader, and then just how far he's now sunk. And so I think my main takeaway from that is not that there's no chance of him becoming the next prime minister, but just that people's fortunes change rather rapidly. That's interesting, isn't it, Andrew, because the reason for that huge fall
1: was this revelation of Rishi Sunak's non-dom status and that his wife had particular tax arrangements. They were all entirely legal. But if you want to be the next prime minister, you're the chancellor. A lot of people wondered why this sort of very high end rich world globalizing tax arrangements and that damaged him. But I wonder whether now that we're looking to the future, a very different future for the Tory party, in a sense, does that get cleared aside? Do people get a new start?
0: I mean, Sunak's definitely in a better place than he was two months ago when all of this was blowing up in his face. There's something interesting about the timing of resignations. So staying for long enough to prove your loyalty, that you're a team player, is important and then jumping fast enough so that you're not completely overwhelmed by association with Johnson is somehow going to play into this. So his, the fact that he was one of the first two to go along with Javid probably helps him. It sort of rehabilitates him a bit. I don't see how it gets him past what Soumya has been talking about, which is the sort of economic row within the party. He right. is a disciplinarian. If the, if the party doesn't like that, then that's a problem for him.
1: That's very true. Now let's look at the future for the Tory party and its impact on Britain. Bit more broadly. And if we look at polling conducted by YouGov in June, support for the party's has fallen across all classes of voters who backed it in 2019. So that does raise the question of whether it can be rescued with different leadership or whether we're just at the end of a relatively long cycle of Conservative government.
0: Yeah, I, it's going to be incredibly difficult. I mean, Johnson brought together northern and southern constituencies. He obviously brought in a lot of Leave-supporting constituencies that the party previously had not won. And because Corbyn was running the Labour Party, he also managed to retain a kind of rump of support in the South. All this sort of fantasist talk about the magnificence of Brexit just was a wonderful kind of balm to the soul for some people. It's very hard to make that case now, with lots of evidence staring people in the face that it's not going that well. And then also his charisma um, is very hard to replicate. I mean, people just Mm -hmm. liked him, and you know him. You can tell us, right? I mean, he's supposed to be fun.
1: Well, yes, I mean, he is. I mean, that seems like a funny thing to say, doesn't it, when you've seen this disaster, and it's very serious. And it's also why so many people are rightly very angry with him. But yes, you know, if you go into a room at Westminster, into a social gathering, people wanted to talk to Boris Johnson because he was funny, because he was... Irreverent, because he had this extraordinarily sort of good memory and this ability. He went to a constituency to make some joke about a party chairman and that worked across the divide. So I think you're fishing in the right pool for me there, which is who on earth can bring that together with the kind of policy and economic policy choices lurking that Sumaya was describing.
0: I mean, the other thing is that that game is played out just because now we've got really tough decisions to be made about cost of living, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's impossible to be all things to all men. At this point, you've got to jump in one way or another. And I guess, again, taxes is a great example of that.
1: Huge problems. I uh, so that Boris's successor is going to inherit high inflation, cost of living crisis, poor long term growth outlook. Give us a, a sense of how bad a state you think Britain is in versus America and other European countries because everyone's going through something of a torrid time.
3: Yeah, and just looking at inflation, first of all, recently the OECD, which is this club of mostly rich countries, um, they had this economic outlook and they essentially forecast that Britain would have the lowest rate of growth in 2023 other than Russia. Uh, So that doesn't bode well. Uh, Its inflation problem seems like it's going to linger for longer than other countries. So that all means that this problem is really going to be drawn out over the next few months, really long period of time over which there will be pressure for the government to do more. It has, of course, already announced a package of measures to protect the very poorest and also to give some broad-based support. But given that household incomes are going to be squeezed over, over the next six months to a year, there's definitely going to be clamouring for more. One thing I've been thinking a lot about recently, though, is Britain's deeper economic issues, right? And so one of the huge challenges that any successor will face is that Britain just performs very poorly in terms of productivity, growth, how much it's actually able to make per hour, per worker. All problems essentially become harder when you haven't got productivity and growth to support you. So arguably you could have lower taxes if only growth was higher, You know, dealing with aging would be easier if only we could become more productive as a nation. Now sorting that out is going to require some real long-term thinking about investment, skills, that sort of thing. I'm hopeful that if we get a new conservative leader, there can just be a bit less chaos and we won't be distracted from those longer term harder questions. Yeah, crossing my fingers.
1: Do you think I'm just impressed you tiny bit or whether you think a change of leadership would get Britain back on course, or at least towards being back on course, how much of it do you think is personal, the Boris effect, or perhaps someone else coming in with a calmer and more methodical way of governing? How much of it is structural?
3: Yeah, I mean, Boris Johnson hasn't been around for long enough as prime minister for him to be responsible for this underlying productivity problem, which has been going on essentially since the beginning of the 2010s. So I think I'd probably say that a leadership change is necessary, but not sufficient.
1: What would the priorities be, Andrew, for leadership if you were what would you be looking out for in their first speech that might turn your rather skeptical column this week on the record of Boris Johnson into a sort of, well, maybe this person might give it a better go. What would you look for?
0: Uh, first off, and I think you will hear this from everyone, a kind of commitment to norms, standards in public life. I mean we're already seeing that from the contenders, but I think that's a sort of baseline. I think Sumea has completely hit on the the critical challenge, and it lasts beyond the summer and the next two years, it goes into the next government and the election cycle after that, which is growth and productivity. So you've got to mention it, and you've got to sound credible and long-termist in your thinking on that, and I think the sort of Sunak point about honesty, right, telling people that it's bad and that difficult decisions are coming is the antithesis of the Johnson mode of governing, and you'd look for a bit of that, I mean, real candor that there is pain coming and difficult decisions associated with it.
1: How do you think this is all being viewed around the world? I've been down at Westminster Green, we'll be a bit later, and the the, the cacophony of babel of languages as people try to explain to their bemused viewers and listeners what on earth has been going on at the Palace of Westminster. What do you think the perception will be of this change of leadership?
0: Well, I guess it depends where you are. So in Ukraine... Probably. This looks like a really weird and bad decision. In France, it just looks funny. But look, it's baffling and chaotic, and it's not a great advert for Britain.
3: My American friends feel quite sorry for me for the general embarrassment that that Britain has experienced over the past few days, yeah.
0: I just wanted to ask you something, Anne, which is, you know, as Johnson exits the stage, slowly or quickly, is there one memory of him that you would share?
1: I was uh, the memory of him thundering away as a young wannabe politician, you know, holding a debating chamber wrapped. And as it happened at the time, as it all goes back to university years. And I was doing a university newspaper. And he gave me his list of things that he planned to do that term and these great speakers he was going to have. And I thought it was a bit thin. And I must have said so slightly tactlessly. And about 25 years later, I think, he came up to me in Westminster. And I said, oh, well, that wasn't so great today in the chamber, what's going on? And he said, that's exactly what you said to me back in this place at university. And it struck me two things about Boris. One is a phenomenal memory. Two, his, he's actually very thin-skinned, and that's why he is so sore at being, as he sees it, forced out. I think it was inevitable. I think he needed to go, and I think he had many flaws. But there's a, a, quite a complex man inside this kind of buffoonery exterior, which I've always been very fascinated by. That's just a personal observation. I think he'll go on to have another career, but it won't be politics.
3: What about the legacy Samia? I think he'll be remembered as a liar. I think he'll probably also be remembered for his work on vaccines rollout, maybe um, Ukraine. Thinking about Rishi Sunak, I think clearly the the furlough scheme, the kind of extraordinary intervention during the pandemic will be remembered. Huge events, huge drama. What's the legacy, Andrew?
0: Well, I would say, I mean, Brexit is the obvious thing to focus on. He won the election in 2019 on this get Brexit done promise. That plainly is not the case. Brexit is with us and unravelling in some ways. But he did ram a deal through and we are living with its consequences. So in that sense, at least, he's a historical figure.
1: Andrew Palmer and Mayor Keynes, both sleep deprived. But thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And do let us know what you think. How will Britain fare under a new Prime Minister? And what do you reckon Boris Johnson's legacy will be? Write to us, podcasts at or you can tweet us at The Economist. And to gain access to all of our coverage of Mr. Johnson's dramatic departure, including some extremely insightful pieces by Andrew and Smeyer, do become a subscriber. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist.